uh, and done the Bread of Life sermon. Uh, Jesus went around in Galilee, that's in the north of the country, purposely staying away from Judea, that's the south, uh, where Jerusalem's in Judea, the capital, because the Jews there were waiting to what? Yeah, take his life. Okay, so, so in Jerusalem, you know, you got a picture, it's almost like wanted posters, you know, uh, dead or alive, you know, $500 reward. Whatever. Uh, they, they're on the lookout for Jesus. He's very aware of this, um, that, that Jerusalem's a dangerous place for him to go. And so because of that, he's been staying north and ministering up in uh, Galilee. However, when the feast of Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, so again, that happens the 15th of Tishri in the fall, uh, depending on the year, it can be from the middle of September to the middle of October, it will, will vary with the year. But when that time comes, uh, <laughs> Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and go south to Judea, to Jerusalem, so your disciples may see the miracles that you do. No one who wants to be a big shot, um, public figure, acts in secret. But since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world because not even his own brothers uh, believed in him. So um, Jesus came from a large family. We forget this sometimes, but, but he, was at least, he was the oldest child of at least seven kids. Uh, he's got uh, four brothers, a couple sisters at least, might be, might be more sisters, we know at least four brothers that we know of in the Gospel of Mark. And so um, his brothers, uh, they don't really believe in him. They, they've watched him do miracles, so they, they know he can do miracles. But this whole thing, bread of life thing, uh, Messiah thing, they, they're not buying in at all. That won't happen until after his resurrection. And so they're, they're kind of almost goading him here. They're almost like daring him a little bit. Hey, if you really claim to be, who you need to get out of the north here. Uh, this is like a rural backwater Kansas up here. Like if you want to be a public figure, you want to make a name for yourself, you need to go to Washington, D.C., you, know, you, you got to go to where the action is. And so they're, they're almost uh, kind of like daring him, it seems like, in a way. Uh, go show yourself. Now, do they know it's dangerous for him to go? Uh, you know, who knows? They, they may know. They, I, I think they, chances are they do. We may have a little sibling rivalry going on here. But uh, anyway, so Jesus says to him in verse 6, Therefore, Jesus said to them, the, uh, the right time for me has not yet come. Uh, one thing we've seen throughout the Gospel of John is that Jesus has a a unique ability to sense what God wants him to do at any point in time. And, uh, and, and he knows it's very dangerous for him to go south. And so the timing of this trip is incredibly important. And so he says, uh, the time for me, the right time has not yet come, but for you, uh, any time is right. You know, there's no price on your head. Uh, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. So, you know, a little bit like you're still in the darkness, uh, you're, not, you're not bought into me. There's no danger for you in going south, so you can go anytime you want, but I need to be uh, careful. I need to pick the right time. And so uh, verse 8, you go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast because for me the right time is not yet come. So to catch this whole timing issue, this sense of uh, discernment that's going on in his life, uh, he's really listening to his father. Uh, he's been staying away from the south because it's very dangerous, and yet he senses the time has come. It's, the time is going to come, but it's not yet, and so he's discerning what God is, was telling him to do. And so uh, having said this, verse 9, he stays in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, uh, he also went, but not publicly, but in secret. So kind of incognito, under the radar, he goes south. Now, now we're going to switch to scene two. Uh, picture this as a TV show. We've just had scene one. It's in the north, setting the stage. Uh, now we're going to switch to the south. We're going we're to switch out to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, down at Jerusalem, what's happening at the feast. So 
Now at the feast, verse 11, the Jews were watching for him, and they're asking, where is that masked man? And so verse 12, among the, uh, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him, and some said, hey, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. So it's kind of a mixed review on Jesus. And, uh, but no one would say, any publicly, say anything publicly, you know, kind of no, no news reporters uh, interviews here, because for fear of the Jews. I mean, there was a price on his head, water posters are up, so to speak, and so no one wants to take a public stand for or against because they know that he's a person, uh, kind of person, uh, uh, you know, persona non grata with, with, the, uh, with the religious elite and, and with the establishment. And so, so now we're going to to sta- gonna go to the, the third scene in this story. Uh, we're going to jump ahead a few days to the halfway point in the feast. Remember the Feast of Tabernacles, seven days, uh, seven day feast. And so about half the halfway point, probably the third or fourth day, uh, Jesus goes up to the temple courts and he begins to teach. Now I want you to catch this. Uh, he is definitely marching into enemy territory. Uh, they're out to kill him. Uh, they're looking for him. They're wondering if he's going to show. And uh, halfway through the piece, uh, the, the, the week, Jesus comes out of hiding. He walks up those huge stone stairs into this, the massive temple uh, courts. Remember, the temple is about two football fields long on a side, made with these massive stones, made at 30, 50, up to 100 tons these stones, some of the stones still there today. He walks up the massive stairway through the, the gates under the huge porticos with the, the Roman columns, the stone roofs that line the interior of the walls that create these large courtyards where you could do teaching. And he sits down and he begins to teach. Now, uh, most of the people, or many of the people had never heard him uh, teach before. Uh, in the Gospel of John, we've not seen him teach a lot in Jerusalem. We're not sure if he taught much publicly, uh, but we know there's a lot of pilgrims. There's just, you know, there's kind of thousands and thousands of people all over the nation and from the world who come at this feast, and so a lot of them have never heard Jesus. And the moment he begins to teach, I mean, they are blown away. Uh, they have never heard anything like this. In fact, later in this story, we won't get to it today, but, but next week we'll see later in this story, the, the, actually, the religious leaders actually send the police to arrest him in the midst of his teaching. And they'll end up coming back and then they, empty-handed. And they'll say, what happened? Why didn't you arrest him? And, and they'll say, uh, man, this, like, you, you got to hear this guy. He's, he's just amazing. So, so we, he, I mean, they're just blown away by his teaching. You know, we know in Matthew's gospel, at the start of his ministry, Jesus gave this very uh, famous message called the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of that sermon, it says the crowds were just blown away because he taught with an authority that the re- religious leaders of the day didn't have. So I'm not sure what, what he's teaching, but it's just it's blowing people away. And so in verse uh, 15, the Jews were amazed and said, how did this man get such learning without having studied? So he'd, uh, he'd not grown up in Jerusalem. He was not a follower, one of the famous rabbis. He'd never gone to their seminaries. And so, like, how did he get so smart? And so 16, Jesus says, well, my teaching, it's not my own. Like, I, I didn't make this up. Um, it comes from him who sent me. It's coming from my father. And so if anyone chooses to do God's will, like if anyone's serious about following God and really wants to know his will, then he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And so catch this, they're, 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 his, they're listening to him, they're blown away by it, but they're a little bit skeptical because it's so different 
from what they're used to, kind of his message, his teaching style, and they're not really sure whether to buy in. And so Jesus gives this very important spiritual principle. He says, hey, let me tell you, if, you, if you're serious about this and you really want to know God's will, then if you're, if you're really willing to obey, then God's going to show you. And we're going to come back and talk about that later on today. And so in verse 18, Jesus talks about his motives for ministry. And he said, you know, he who speaks on his own, uh, he who comes in, teaches just kind of his own agenda, uh, he does so to gain honor for himself. He's just trying to make a name for himself. A lot of teachers do that. But he said, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him, um, he's just trying to make, uh, kind of clearly communicate the message that he's been given. Uh, he says that, is, that uh, he's a man of truth. In other words, and there's no falsehood in him. In other words, you can trust him. Jesus says there's a lot of people who are going to come and try to teach you, and they have a, a personal agenda. They're trying to make a name for themselves. But he said when you find someone who their only goal is just to accurately represent the one who sent them, their father, uh, you can trust that person. They don't have a personal agenda in this. And, of course, he's talking about himself. Now, at this point, Jesus is going to confront them. So not only has he, he marched into the temple, right into the center of the Jewish establishment of power, these men who are out to kill him, the Sanhedrin is right there, the, the, the Jewish high court right there in the temple complex. Not only is he gonna, he's going to go and kind of boldly begin to teach, but he's now going to confront them directly. And he knows that they're out to kill him because a year earlier, or somewhere about a year earlier, somewhere in there, uh, he had healed this man on the Sabbath, the, 30, the 38-year-old uh, or 38-year lame man. And, uh, and ever since then, they've been trying to kill him. But this is illegal. Um, I mean, they, they're supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the nation. Uh, they, they're supposed to be the ones that honor the Bible. And the Old Testament was very clear that when you are going to claim someone of blasphemy or you're going to claim someone of some serious crime, you, you don't just, like, have a lynch mob. You don't just go out and just grab them and kill them. I mean, there's got, there's got to be due process. You have to take them to court. There's got to be witnesses. I mean, there's done in a certain way. And so he's going to challenge them. Hey, you claim to be the leaders of the nation. You claim to be the spiritual leaders. You claim to be uh, kind of honoring God's word. But, man, you're, you're violating it all over the place. And so in verse, uh, uh, verse 19, he says, Has not Moses given you the law, and yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? Now, of course, there's some there in the crowd that are very aware they're out to kill him. There's many who are pilgrims or out-of-towners. They don't know this. And so some of them say, well, you're demon-possessed. You're crazy. Uh, who's trying to kill you? And so Jesus refers back this one miracle that he, he done, this healing on the Sabbath. And he says, listen, I did one miracle, and you're all astonished, all blown away. It was on the Sabbath. And yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses, it came from the patriarchs, like from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you circumcised a child on the Sabbath. Now, in the Old Testament law, there was uh, there, there, you know, there were a couple laws that are, he's talking about here. Uh, first law is you don't work on the Sabbath. Uh, we, we know that one. This, there's another law that said that, that when a, a male child is born, that he needs to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. Now, the question was, what happens when the eighth day falls on the Sabbath? Because we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And so what do you do? you got two laws. Which one takes precedence? And what the, the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, had decided is that, well, actually, when you're circumcising a child, you're kind of making him perfect. You're removing the flesh. You're, you're, you're kind of removing the imperfections, so to speak. Uh, you're bringing him back to God. It's, it's, a, it's actually an act of reconciliation. It's an act of, like, healing almost. 
And so they decided, yeah, even if it falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and circumcise them because it's an act of, of, of healing or restoration. And so Jesus is going to use that logic and say, hey, if you can heal, heal a little boy of just kind of one part of his body uh, by, on that day, then why can't I heal a whole man on the Sabbath? And so he says in verse uh, uh, 23, now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, then why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances. In other words, kind of letter of the law and make a right judgment. Like, like you know, uh, can, can I use your, use your head here? Uh, when you read scripture, uh, read for the intent. Don't just read for the surface, but read for the intent. Like, what's God really after in this? And so he's kind of challenging them. Hey, you're on me. You're giving me a hard time about this whole thing. You're trying to kill me because I healed on the Sabbath. Man, that is illegal. And by, it's, by the way, it makes sense if you stop and think about it. You know, why, why, why would God want to, I mean, why wouldn't want to, God, God want to heal on the Sabbath? That's what Sabbath is about. It's about restoration. It's about uh, making things right again. And so that's the passage. Now, next week, as we'll go on, We'll see what happens in this conflict. Uh, but from, for today, uh, we, we want to, I want to focus in on a couple things Jesus himself. We, we've seen what happens here. He marches, he goes into, uh, marches into harm's way. He travels south to, to the Feast of Tabernacles. When he gets there, he does some teaching. It leads him into conflict with the religious leaders. He takes them on head on like he always does. Jesus is always kind of fearless, isn't he? This kind of, he's just not afraid to take on anyone. You see this all through his life. You know, it's just like he, he's just not afraid. He just, what, uh, he's going to say what, what, what's on his mind. He's going to speak the truth regardless of the consequences. So he just kind of heads into harm's way. He confronts these leaders, and, and so we'll, we'll see what happens next. But uh, for today, uh, I want to focus on, this, on the person of Jesus himself. And we talk a lot about this here, that, that our vision here is to unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers. And one of the things I'll often say is the whole point of, follow, of following Jesus is to become like Jesus. But what's Jesus like? You know, who is he? What defines him? And today in this passage, there's a couple of core character qualities. I'm calling them essentials. A couple of essential character qualities or abilities that I think help define Jesus and help us to understand what does it mean to be a Christ follower. Because the better we understand Jesus, the more we understand, well, that's where we're going. That's, that's what God's doing in our life because as he is, so we will be as we follow him. So there in your note sheet, <coughs> there's a section that's called Following Jesus, Two Essentials. And I just want to focus on kind of two essential character qualities and the implications for our lives. So let's jump in. The first character quality that jumps out at me today, the first essential, is the essential of courage. So I want you to jot down courage. I think one of the things that strikes you about Jesus as you study his life is that he's absolutely a man of courage, isn't he? Uh, sometimes we take this for granted, but you just kind of see it at every turn. But you see it today. You know, we start in the, the, remember how the chapter starts, chapter 7, verse 1. It starts that Jesus is in Galilee, and he's staying away from the south because he knows that they're out to kill him. And so Jesus is not reckless. Uh, he, he's aware of the danger. He's taking precautions. 
And yet, uh, and yet, when the fall comes around, the Feast of Tabernacles, he begins to sense from his father that the time has come. The time has come for him to go south. And, and so picture this. I mean, uh, you know, seriously, I mean, I'm sure they don't have wanted posters up, but it's that kind of feeling in town. Uh, they, they're out, they've been out to kill him uh, for the last year, and they're just waiting for an opportunity. And so Jesus now gathers his men, and he not only goes south, he not only goes to uh, to Jerusalem, but he, the, halfway through the feast, he marches into the center of religious power of Jerusalem, of the religious establishment, and he begins to teach openly, and then not only does he teach openly, but when they challenge him, he takes them on and confronts them about their disobedience to the word of God. You see what's going on here? Now, I think that one of the things that happens, sometimes we get so familiar with the story of Jesus, we miss the obvious. Um, I, when I was working on this message this week, I kept thinking of uh, a story I'd read about Martin Luther King Jr., you know, the famous civil rights leader. I don't know if you've ever studied his life, but, but he was under constant death threats. He received death threats all the time, and yet he was a man of great courage. And so, for, for example, when, the, when they knew he was coming to a certain town, a city, uh, the death threats would start coming in. If you come to the city, we're going to kill you. And yet he would just say, hey, I'm not going to live my life in fear. You know, I, I've got a calling, I've got a cause, and, and he would march into harm's way. Um, and I remember in particular, there was an event in 1968 in, in Memphis um, where there was a sanitation worker strike going on. A couple of blacks had been uh, killed through, for poor safety in the sanitation area. So they were doing a strike, and so he was, he was coming into town to support them on this strike. And uh, on April the 3rd, he went to this uh, Mason temple, and he gave a very famous speech. It was called the Mountaintop Speech. And you may have remembered it. I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. And, uh, and if there's, uh, this is the time I'd, I'd want to live in all of human history because I just see some new things happening. And, and he, so he gives this very powerful speech. And in that speech that he's giving, in spite of the death threats that he received, if you come to our town, we're going to kill you, in the midst of that, he says, I don't know if I'll see the promised land. I don't know if I'll get to go in the promised land. I'm not sure I'm going to get to go in the promised land, but I can see it, and I, and I, and I know you're going to get there, and so I'm no longer afraid. I'm not afraid of any man. I may not make it, but, but you're going to make it. And the very next day, he was assassinated. And you look at that. You read the story of a man like that, and you look at the courage to live under death threats and to continue to go and to march into harm's way and to say, I don't care. I, this is what the God's called me to do. I, I fear no man. I will speak. And we, we read that, and, and it's, it's inspiring, isn't it? It's powerful. And yet often we read the story of Jesus and we miss the obvious, that this is exactly who he was. He was a man who was constantly marching into harm's way. Uh, there was a death threat on his life. Uh, he was marching into enemy camps, and yet he just he goes in and he takes them out. And you see this all through the life of Jesus. I love it. You know, the, the whole reason they want to kill him is because he's healing on the Sabbath and then claiming God is his father. But the initial reason, healing on the Sabbath. So if it were me, what would I do? I would start healing the other six days. <laughs> I, I, six other days, you know, you've been sick 38 years. What's one day? You know, let's pick it up tomorrow. I'll meet you here at nine, you know. And I just avoid that whole conflict. But not Jesus. He's like, no, no, this is wrong. You got the Sabbath all wrong. I'm healing on the Sabbath. And even after trying to, we're going to see it again in chapter 9 in a few weeks. He heals another blind man on the Sabbath. It's just like he, he just keeps on going. 
One of my favorite stories is in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus uh, is healing a guy again on the Sabbath. Uh, is the religious leaders are there in the synagogue, uh, and they're, they're, they're watching to see if he'll heal on the Sabbath. He calls this guy up with a crippled hand. He says, stand here in front of everybody. Stretch out your head. I mean, he's creating a scene. Then he challenges these guys. Hey, is the Sabbath for doing good or the Sabbath for doing evil? And he heals the man. It's kind of like in your face. This was Jesus. This was Jesus. Does that irritate you? Okay, great. Why don't you come front and center? Let me do it very publicly. You see? And this was Jesus. And he just, he never pulled back. And you see it over and over again in his ministries that he was, he, was, he was fearless and marching into harm's way. I love this about him. Um, but it's not just with his, uh, with his enemies. Uh, you'd see this like with the crowds. If you were last week, uh, we talked about this bread of life sermon. Uh, remember this, the context. The crowds are there. They want to make him king. It's his, his public approval ratings are through the roof. But he discerns that they're not seeking him for the the right reason, so it's time to thin the herd, you know? Uh, I have certain sermons I call thinning the herd sermons, you know? Like when too many people start coming for the wrong reason, it's time to lower the boom, right? <laughs> it's time to say, no, 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 you gotta understand what following Jesus is about. You're all here for the wrong reason and blah, blah, we got too many. Look, you're taking up seats from people who could come and really wanna know Jesus. So we need to thin the herd. And so Jesus had a thinning the herd sermon. And so he talks to Jewish people. He says, here's, are you going to follow me? You got to eat my flesh. And then you got to down it with some blood. Like, really, can you be more offensive? Can you be, you can't, it's like, but he knew they're falling for the wrong reasons. And so he's going to like, hey, you know, he's not afraid. You know, there, there's some, some, some pastors or whatever, they're afraid to say the tough things. What if people won't get, he didn't have that fear. He's going to speak the truth. But it wasn't just with the crowds. It's with his family. <laughs> Have you ever realized, uh, you probably know this, that sometimes the hardest place to follow Jesus is with your own family, right? And yet Jesus was fearless with his family. We see it here. His brothers are trying to twist his arm. Hey, you need to go south. You need to go to Jerusalem. You can't, uh, you can't mount a political play, uh, uh, campaign from backwater Kansas. You need to go to Washington, D.C. You need to go south. And, and he, just, he just calls his brothers on it. He says, look, you guys aren't even in the light yet. You're in the darkness. So you can go anytime. It's not dangerous for you. Uh, it's a little different for me. And so he stands up. He has a very strong sense. We would call it today, in modern psychological terms, we'd say he has strong boundaries. That he knows who he is. He knows who God's called him to be. He doesn't live for the approval of others. He lives for the approval of one. Very strong sense of who he is. Um, you know, there's one time, it's funny, his family, early on in his ministry, He's, uh, the crowds are coming, it's getting crazy, and they think he's lost his mind. This is what the scripture says. Literally, it says they think he's, they think he's lost it. Uh, and so, they, you know, they, they think he's like Don Quixote, you know, out there fighting the windmills. Uh, and so they come, and they're like outside sending the message, hey, your mother and your brother are here. They've come to get you to take, put you away, lock you up. And he's like, who is my mother? Who is my brothers? Who are my sisters? It's the man or woman who does the will of God. That's who's my brother. You see, he, just, he was fearless. And it was not just with his family, it was with his closest friends. 
You think of that scene towards the end of his life where he tells his closest followers, hey, we're going south, we're going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to be arrest me, I'm going to be uh, 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 kind of tortured, and then I'm going to be killed, then I'm going to rise again. And, and they're, like, they're like blown away, this is a bad plan. And Peter, his top guy, pulls him aside, you've got to stop talking like this. This is bad for the guy's morale. Come on, this is, this is not how Messiah talked, get it together. He's trying to act as like Jesus' political campaign advisor, you know. And, and you remember what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. He just calls him on it. Right? He's called one of his closest friends. Get behind me. And you see this throughout his life. He is a man of courage. And I'll tell you something. The last few years as I've studied the life of Jesus and just kind of thought more about this, here's what I'm convinced more than ever. That for us to be passionate Christ followers, if we want to succeed as Christ followers, one of the most important and, uh, but underrated character quality is the quality of courage. That it is impossible, mark my words, it is impossible to follow Jesus well if we don't grow in the area of courage. Are, are you with me in this? Amen. Like, let me spell this down. Kind of, let me unpack this a little bit. Um, just think, think how true this is. It's true in every area of your life of following Jesus. You start off, you're the Christian life, you become a Christ follower. Is everyone real big on that in your life? Everyone go, oh, that's fantastic. We're so happy for you. It's like it takes courage to stand up for Jesus. You're going to lose a lot of friends, family members, right? From the very beginning, you can't start following without courage. And then you take it to the next, uh, next level. You, you start to grow in Jesus. You know, we've been doing this, this class, this course on Tuesday nights called, it's our second essential. It's called Loving People, Doing Relationships Well. You know, we have over 320 people in that class. It's been amazing. We just like, God's just doing some cool thing. But anyway, in this, uh, this course, we talked about this, that the first step to spiritual growth and becoming like Jesus is a commitment to authenticity, to be radically honest with ourselves and God and eventually some trusted others about who we are, about what we're feeling, what we're thinking, what our motives are, what our past has been. Why? Because until we're honest about who we are, not even Jesus can help us. But that takes courage, doesn't it? It takes courage to face the truth about yourself and to admit, admit what you're thinking, feeling. That takes courage. Um, you move on and talk about relationships. We come to Jesus. He says, I want you to love people as I've loved you. I want you to do relationships a whole new way. But that takes courage, doesn't it? It takes courage to initiate relationship. It takes courage to be vulnerable in relationship. It takes courage to be your own person in relationship and not just kind of go with the flow of of people around you, be who they want you to be, be your own person. It takes courage to hold each other accountable in relationship. It takes courage to move towards conflict in the right way in relationship. It's impossible to do relationships well without a healthy dose of courage in our life. And then when it comes to sharing Christ, I mean, one of the key uh, components of being a passionate Christ follower is sharing Christ, to be, to be willing to share who Jesus is and what he's done in our life. But many times that's unpopular. It takes courage, doesn't it? So as you start to walk through, we could go on and on and on with example after example. When you stop and think about it, it is impossible to follow Jesus well without courage. So if we're, if we're going to grow to be a church of passionate Christ followers, if in our own lives we're going to be a passionate Christ followers, we are going to have to grow in the area of courage. Now, 
Question is, and where does courage come from? And I think there's a couple answers to this. I think um, on the one hand, sometimes courage is a supernatural gift of God. Uh, you see this in the Bible. Um, this last week at this course on loving people, uh, this one woman shared publicly with all of us, so they could be comfortable here, but uh, she, she's recently come to Christ. She's a brand new Christian. She was baptized last weekend. And God put it on her heart that she needed to go and confront her father, who'd been very abusive to her and with whom she has not spoken in 30 years. And she went and confronted him on that this last week. That takes courage, doesn't it? And I was talking with her after class, and I was saying, that's just amazing. And she said, Mike, she said, the thing is, is that Jesus was so much with me, it wasn't even hard. I just sensed his power, you know? And you see that. There are times in our life where God supernaturally gives us courage. You see this in the Bible. There's a great verse there on your note sheet in 2 Timothy chapter 1. It says, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity or fear, but a spirit of power, a spirit of love, a spirit of self-discipline. One thing I'm recognizing in my own life is that those times when I'm afraid, those times when I'm discouraged, those times when I, uh, uh, I, I'm uh, skeptical about something, the one thing I'm realizing more and more is that it's, it's not the Lord, that's not from the Lord, that's not who he is, right? That he, he wants to lead us and so he's given us a different spirit. Um, so sometimes it's supernatural, you see this in the New Testament, like in the book of Acts, Think of the transformation in like the, the, the early apostles. Remember when Jesus was arrested, they all ran and fled. Now it's a month and a half later. He's returned to heaven, the Holy Spirit's come. These same men, Peter and John, Peter who denies Jesus, a month and a half later, now the Spirit's come in his life, he's standing up for Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, talking to the same exact religious leaders that, that a month and a half earlier had, had Jesus put to death, and he is boldly confronting them. In fact, there in your note sheet, it says their response, these leaders, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, <coughs> and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And so sometimes God comes, and he gives a supernatural courage in situations, no question. But I found in my own life that that's usually not the way it works. Uh, I wish it were. But that uh, often the way it works is that God asks us to take uh, steps, small steps of courage in the face of fear. That often we think of, of that courage is an absence of fear. Actually, courage is often acting in spite of fear. Uh, in World War II, there was a very famous uh, American pilot. He was kind of the ace of aces in World War II. He logged more combat hours than any other American pilot, uh, flew more uh, aerial missions, like 134 encounters with the enemy, or enemy skies. He brought down more enemy planes than any other of uh, our, our pilots. All these congressional uh, medals of honor, you know, French uh, foreign leader, just all kinds of things. Amazing guy. Uh, his name was Eddie Riddenbacher. And uh, he was once asked about his courage, and this is what he said. He said, courage, it's there on your note sheet, courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. And, and so I think it's, it's, that's absolutely right. In our life, how do we grow in courage? You grow in courage by small steps of obedience when there's risk involved. When God's asking you to do something and you, you 
kind of in the face of your fear, you obey, courage grows uh, in our life. And so the question I would ask for you today is, as you're here today, is, is, uh, is there a step of courage in your life you need to take right now? Is there a decision you need to make? Um, is there a relationship you need to approach? Uh, is there a person at work you need to speak to Christ about? You know what? I, I don't know. It could go on and on. I, I had people coming up to the service last night and went, man, that boom, that hit me here. It hit me here. And the, the examples are, you know, it's just like it's all across the board. But you know. You know. And if God's asking you to do something as you sit here, he's probably talking to you right now. You're like, oh, crud. Like, I know. I know. It's just like, it's just so, man, I just wanted to come to church and be on autopilot today. You just so messed with my whole week, and now I got to figure out, right. So, okay, so, so here's, what I wa- here's what I want to put neon lights around for us as a church. Are, are you with me on this? To follow Jesus well, one of the essential character qualities of our life is courage. It is impossible to follow well if we don't grow in this area. Okay, it's one of the most important and underrated qualities. Now, number two. The second essential that I see uh, jump out at me in this passage is discernment. One of the things that marks Jesus is his ability to discern his Father's will. And you see this in this passage. He's hanging out in the north in Jerusalem for six months after he feeds the 5,000 because he knows it's too dangerous to go south. And yet at the Feast of Tabernacles, he senses God calling him to go south. And then when his brothers try to get him to go at the beginning of the feast, he senses, no, it's not the time for me yet. And this is the mark of Jesus' life. And one of the secrets of his success was his ability to discern what God wanted him to do in his life discern spiritual truth, discern uh, what, what God wanted him to do and when to do it. Um, and as you study his life, this goes all through his life. Think in, in the Gospel of John, how many times he said this, uh, my works are not my own, I'm only doing what I see my Father doing. Uh, my teaching is not my own, I'm only teaching what the Father's doing. And so over and over again he said this, that one of the keys to success is his ability to discern what God is telling him to do. Right? Now, In this passage, Jesus gives us the secret of his discernment. And it's in verse 17. And I want us to look at this. (coughs) 7.17. He says, if if anyone chooses to do God's will. He says, uh, if anyone, literally in the Greek, it says, um, if anyone is willing to do God's will. That's what it literally says. If anyone's willing to do God's will. In other words, you come to a place in your life where more than anything else, you want to know God's will. You want to know what God wants you to do. That's your passion. You don't care whether it goes go right or go left. It doesn't matter what he says. You're just going to do it. This is the passion of your life. You just want to know God's will. You want to please your Father. He says, if anyone's willing to know to do uh, God's will, Um, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Now catch this. Jesus is very aware of what's happening with the crowd. He comes in, he's teaching. His teaching is amazing. But it's also very different than what they're used to. His style is different. 
His message is different. And in many ways, it contradicts what they've been taught their whole life. Just case in point on the Sabbath. These people have been taught their whole life certain things you do not do on the Sabbath. And Jesus is contradicting that to the extent that the leaders are trying to kill him for it. And so their love in his teaching, your teaching is amazing. But on the other hand, it's, they're like, but we don't know. It's like, it's very cool, but this is like, I'm not sure. Is this really from God or not? And so here's what Jesus says. He says, listen. I understand this is a hard decision for you, but if you really are willing to do God's will, no matter what, that's the key. And if if you're really willing, God will show you. And to me, this becomes one of the most powerful principles of the life of Christ's follower. The key to us discerning well, the key to us discerning spiritual truth, the the key to us uh, kind of sensing what God wants us to do, The key to hearing God's voice, the key to our growth is coming to this place of absolute willingness to do whatever the Father wants us to do. When we get to that point, we're able to discern spiritual truth, but not before. Now, you see this throughout the whole Bible. For example, in the Old Testament, you often see this statement. God will say to the nation, he'll say, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? All your heart, right? Over and over again. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with with what of your heart? All of your heart. You'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with half your heart. Right? Wrong. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with 80% of your heart wrong. No, no, no. No, you'll seek me and find me when you come to a place in your life where you don't care whether I say go right or go left, you're in. And when you come to that place, that's when I'll show myself. Are you with me in this? Are you seeing this? Um, Think of Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2 says, if you seek wisdom, it says, if you look for it as, as, as if it's silver, If you cry out for understanding in the streets, crying out, if you look for it as if it's buried treasure, then you will find the knowledge of God. You see? There's an intensity level here. Now here's what I think we often do. I think this is where we often get off track spiritually is because often we come to God, we want to know spiritual truth, we want to grow, we want specific direction in a situation, and we ask God, God, would you show me what is true or would you show me what to do? Um, But what we really do is we're treating God as if he's a cosmic consultant. And so what we're really asking is, we're like, God, I got this really big decision I need to make here. I would love for you to weigh in on it. And then I'm going to take your advice into consideration. And if it makes sense to me, and if I like what I hear, I'm going your way. So could you please weigh in on this? And God says, no. That's not how it works. That God will not weigh in until we've surrendered, until we come to the place we really want to know. A powerful uh, principle. Um, you know, I've experienced this uh, in my own life, that I, I find in my own life I'm making a decision on something. You know, it could be, uh, uh, you know, it could be some kind of purchase in my life. It could be some kind of relationship decision. 
Hey, do I move towards a situation or, or wait? There's a difficult phone call. Do I make it now? Is it wiser to wait? Uh, is it, uh, you know, in this building, do we move forward to this building thing or not move forward in the building? Is it a ministry issue, a family issue, whatever? That I find that is, it, when I'm in that spot where, like, you know, usually you have a strong desire one way or another. And as long, it, until I get to the place where I'm really willing to go right or left. Now catch this. I, I don't mean that I equally like right or left. Because you think of Jesus in the garden. Father, if there's any way to avoid this cross, uh, I don't want to go, but not my will, but yours. And so he came to a place of submission. It's not like, oh, I don't care whether I die or not, you know, just got whatever you want. It's like he really cared, but what he cared more is that he's going to please his father no matter what. So in my own life, I find that when I come to a place, it's like, okay, buy it or not buy it. Make the contact, not make the contact. Go to this decision, not whatever the thing is. That when I come to a place where I, I've really come to a place of surrender, I've come to a place where, okay, God, you know what I want, but if you say left, I'll go left. And if you say right, I'll go right. I'm submitted. It's at that point it gets clear to me. What, what is my, and not a moment before. See? Uh, there's, a, there's a famous uh, spiritual leader in the Christian leader in the 1800s. His name was George Mueller. Uh, he was famous because he, he founded about 200 orphanages for street children. And uh, he ran them all by faith. He never asked for funds, and God just miraculously provided him. He's a tremendous man of prayer. And he was once asked, because he was just so respected in this area, like, how do you discern God's will in your life? And there in your note sheet, there's a quote. He says, well, here's what I do. <laughs> he says, I seek at the beginning, kind of the beginning of the process, to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. In other words, not that he doesn't care one way or another, but that, that I'm willing to go either way. And he says, nine-tenths of the trouble with people is general, generally is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulty, catch that, nine-tenths, 90% are overcome when our hearts are ready to do God, the Lord's will, whatever it may be. When, when, uh, when one is truly in this state, it's usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. And I found it to be true. The discerning God's will, discerning spiritual truth, the key is a willingness, whatever you want. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, you're trying to figure out whether I'm really from God or not. Let me tell you, if you're willing to follow whatever it means, then God will show you. God will show up and he will show you. Oswald Chambers, there on your note sheet, puts it like this. He says, the golden rule for understanding in spiritual matters is not intellect, but obedience. You see this? What Jesus, te what Jesus teaches in terms of discerning spiritual truth it's not so much an issue of the head as it's an issue of the heart. It's not an issue as much of the intellect as it is of the will, our willingness. And so he said, the golden rule for understanding of spiritual matters is not intellect, it's obedience. Obey God in the thing that he shows you, and instantly the next thing is opened up. God will never reveal more truth about himself until you've obeyed what you know already. If things are dark to us spiritually, it's because there is something we will not do. And so as you study the life of Jesus and you say, what does it mean to be a passionate Christ follower and who is he and what's he about? And I think this passage gives us two key essentials of his life and what it means to be a Christ follower. As to with courage, has to do with discernment. Um, there in your note sheet, there's a quote from, uh, from Bill Hybels, uh, pastor at Willow Creek back in uh, 
Chicago. And, and he talks about what does it mean to be an authentic Christian, a real Christian. And he says authentic Christianity is not learning a set of doctrines and then stepping into cadence with people all marching the same way. It's not simply humanitarian service to the less fortunate. It's a walk. It's a supernatural walk with a living, dynamic, communicating God. Now catch this. Thus the heart and soul of the Christian life is learning to hear God's voice. That's discernment. And then developing the courage to do what he tells us to do. There's courage. Do you catch this? The heart and soul of the Christian life is discernment, learning to hear what God's telling you to do, which is a result of our submission. And then it's courage, courage to follow through. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to study your word together. And thank you for your son. And what an incredible model he is. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the way that he not only teaches us how to live, he models how to live. And we've seen in this series his, both of these essentials, his, his constant discernment of what you want him to say, do, be, and also his courage to be it regardless of the cost. God, we pray that you would give us the heart of Jesus. We pray that you would establish these two things. You teach us these two essentials in our own life, that we would learn how to discern what you're saying to us, and then develop the courage to follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.